What do you think about this statement that has been made about the church? The church is still answering questions that nobody is asking. The church is still answering questions that nobody is asking. Now, I believe that that statement is intended to communicate that the church is out of date, that the church is out of touch, that the church today is irrelevant and no longer necessary. So I want to acknowledge right up front that the true church of Christ will never, never be irrelevant in the world. The church, the true church of Christ, will always be necessary. Perhaps the church is not always thoughtful and intentional about how we communicate the deep truths of God and the gospel that has been entrusted to us. And so when that's true and where that's true, we we need to change that. But the church will never be irrelevant. My father used to always say about my grandmother, not his mother, his mother-in-law, which makes it even worse. Don't confuse her with facts. Her mind is made up. Don't confuse her with facts. Her mind is made up. It could be that our culture is a little bit like that. It doesn't want to ask questions whose answers might contradict what it wants to believe, what it's already decided to be true. Whether those answers be about social issues or scientific issues, it doesn't matter. But in this, our culture is not progressive as they think they are. They are regressive, even ancient, as ancient as the Israelites who had no king. And Scripture says repeatedly, therefore, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is not a new thing. You can't get more up-to-date or relevant than that. And so I say all of this because the passage that we're going to look at this morning might seem a little bit out of touch, a little bit irrelevant, because we are going to talk about the devil, right? Just a mythical character, right, from an age when people were so superstitious. Come on, you don't believe in the devil anymore, do you? In as much as our culture does not believe in the devil, our culture is never going to arrive at the right answers to the questions that really trouble the world. But if the devil is real, as God says he is, if he does have influence, as God says he does, then the most relevant thing we can do is ask questions about him. Who is he? What are his tactics? How can he impact my life? How does he play into a person's attempt to make a difference in this world? How do I interact with him? We've got to answer these questions because you and I must be faithful disciples of Christ. We must be faithful disciples of Christ. And we must not allow the devil to dissuade us from that or to hinder us from being faithful disciples. I hope when we've finished looking at our passage this morning that that will be the case. So if you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 4. 
If you don't have a Bible, there should be one there in the pew in front of you. Moving on this morning to Matthew chapter 4. And when you've found your place, I'm going to ask you to stand as we here read together the word of the living God. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Let's pray together. Uh, Spirit of God, we need you now, as always, when we come to your word, when we consider the deep truths of it. We consider who you are. When we consider who our enemy is, Lord, these are heavy and grave matters. And so we pray that your spirit would give us wisdom and understanding and appropriate living in light of the realities of the world in which we live and the world that we don't see. So we pray that you would teach us about these things this morning. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Believe it or not, I don't like to be overly dramatic. And I don't like to exaggerate or be hyperbolic just for the, the sake of getting your attention. And so when I say that, of, of all the vital passages and truths that we find in Scripture that are important for us to understand, the one before us this morning is one of the, the most important. The one that we must truly understand if we will successfully and faithfully follow Christ, if we will be faithful disciples, if we will actually make a difference for Jesus' sake in this world in which we live. The Gospel of Matthew has been called a handbook for teaching. That's what it was called in the very earliest years of the church after it was written. It's been compared to the manual of discipline that was used by that strict yet devoted Qumran community that, that predated Jesus. And so the story, as Matthew tells it, is intended to discipline us, to teach us, so that it produces faithful and effective disciples. So let's look at how Matthew tells the story 
And how through the telling of the story, that purpose might be accomplished, that we would be faithful disciples. If you were here the last two Sundays, you know we were in in chapter 3, where Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan River. And this event marked the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus. At this time, Jesus is presented to the world. And he willingly takes up the office of, of Messiah, of being the mediator that will stand between God and sinful human beings. And it's a monumental moment, an important moment, because the, the presence of the Trinity is here. The Father who opens heaven and speaks, the Son who is baptized, the Spirit of God who descends and rests upon Jesus in the form of a dove. Matthew tells us in the very last verse of chapter 3 that the voice of God spoke from heaven with this unequivocal declaration of the identity of Jesus. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Then immediately we come to chapter 4, verse 1, and we read, Then, or thereupon, thereupon, after the baptism, the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So you see what's going on here. As soon as Jesus boldly and beautifully identifies with unclean sinners in his baptism, as soon as he, it's intimated that he is willing to do something about that uncleanness, as soon as the possibility is put forth that the unclean can be made clean, that sins can be washed away, As soon as the proclamation is made, here is my beloved son. And as soon as Jesus accepts all that being the son requires of him. And doing all the son must do. As soon as all of that happens, the battle with the enemy begins. We can't miss here the parallels between the inauguration of Jesus' ministry whereby... He will accomplish the the possibility of re-creation, new creation. We have to compare this moment with the time of the original creation. You know the story. Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God created. right? And After He created, whatever it was He created, He said, it is good. It is good. And then he created man and woman. And we know that that was good because he created man and woman in his very own image. All of the work of God in creation pleased him. Everything was good. And Genesis chapter 2 ends with these words. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. A description of innocence, of delight of complete openness, of unhindered communication, an existence that has no concept of shame. It truly is a beautiful world. Then immediately, chapter 3 begins. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say? You see, God created beauty. And then, 
Thereupon, Satan came into the beauty of all that God had created good and everything that pleased him. And the enemy came questioning and creating doubt about the truthfulness of the words God had spoken. Eve said to the serpent, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. So he's accusing God of being a liar. Then Satan continues, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here he accuses God of being ill-intentioned toward the people he has created. And so the moment that you doubt the truthfulness of God, the moment that you believe he does not speak truth, the moment you believe that he, the one who gives you a hope and a future, is ill-intentioned toward you, guess what? Beauty disappears. It's gone. It's destroyed. And so we come to Matthew's story. Just as God proclaimed the goodness of his creation, it is good. He here declares that Jesus, his beloved son, he is his son and in him he is well pleased. Jesus is good. And in Jesus, God finds satisfaction and delight. And immediately. And once again, in that moment... Satan is on hand to seek to destroy the good things of God. So as it turns out, it's not just a one-time strategy of the devil. It's a strategy that's ongoing and relentless. An interval of thousands of years did not cause the devil to give up or to change his tactics. And let me just tell you, if a thousand years are to pass before the Lord returns, the devil will not change his tactics. The devil will be relevant every day of the history of this world. Do you believe that? The devil will always be relevant. He will always oppose the good things of God. He will always seek to destroy the beautiful realities that the gospel brings when human beings enter into the intimate and personal relationship with God for which they were created. That's a beautiful relationship. And it produces beautiful things. And so since the evidence of the presence of that intimate relationship is love, the devil will oppose love and seek to destroy it. To destroy your ability to give love, to destroy your ability to receive love. Since the evidence of the presence of this relationship is joy, the devil will seek to oppose and to destroy joy. Since the evidence of that relationship is peace, he will oppose peace and seek to destroy it, to replace it with turmoil and unrest that he might use you to stir up. Since the evidence of the presence of the relationship is patience, our enemy will instill and incite impatience and the anger that often follows it. Since the evidence of the relationship with the Lord is kindness, the enemy will oppose kindness and seek to destroy the kind acts of this world. Since the evidence of the presence of the relationship is goodness, 
he'll seek to destroy everything that's good. Since the evidence of the presence of that relationship is faithfulness and gentleness, the enemy will seek to make us unfaithful and harsh. And since the evidence of the presence of that relationship is self-control, our enemy will incite us to live lives that are absolutely out of control. See, you and I need to know this. We need to have this as a worldview. The way we look at the world. In this world, the enemy, Satan, the devil, will insinuate himself into goodness and beauty of the things of God. In this world and in your life and in the lives of others. Look at your bulletin insert. Not now. (laughs) Listen to me right now. But look at it later. You'll read instance after instance of him inserting himself into the beautiful Things of the Lord. If you want to be relevant, if you want to be relevant, you've got to acknowledge the destructive work of Satan is real and it's ongoing. And if you believe in Jesus, you must also believe in the devil because Jesus believed in him. He encountered him here in the desert. Matthew believed in him. The other apostles believed in him. The writers of Scripture believed in him. He is an ancient foe, as Martin Luther calls him. But he's very present and that makes him relevant. Not to believe in him and not to believe in his work makes you irrelevant. It makes you out of touch with the world. Not to believe that he hates God and his people, all people, makes you irrelevant. It makes you not really connected with the world in which the devil is a very real presence. The word that we translate, devil, means slanderer or accuser. And so he does both. He slanders God. Did God really say? God's a liar. Slanders God. Look in verse 10. There Jesus switches the name from Matthew's devil to Satan, which means adversary. And in between these two names, devil and Satan, what is he called in the middle of the passage? Tempter. Right. So here's how it works just in case you don't know, but you know how this works. As your adversary, Satan goes after you. He tempts you to sin. And usually the temptation puts us in a good frame of mind toward him, right? Because we like those sins that we do. We enjoy them. They bring us pleasure. It means gain for us. So, hey, the person who who wants to do that for us, must be okay. And so we think, we would never say it, but we think, well, well, the devil is for us. And so we yield and we decide, oh, okay, I'll do this. I will do this sin. And in that moment, when you choose to sin, he turns on you. No longer is he your adversary. Now he becomes your accuser. Big brother to little brother. Go ahead and eat the chocolate chip cookies. Little brother, I can't. Mom said not to. Big brother, oh, go ahead. She won't mind. And besides, they they look so delicious. Little brother eats the cookies, all of them. Big brother, hey, Mom, Johnny ate all the chocolate chip cookies. Right? The devil is not your friend. He was never for you. 
He will never be for you or for anyone else. He is your accuser. He's my accuser. And listen, all who follow him don't end up in a blissful place having a really good time. They end up in hell. Miserable with the devil. The devil cannot give you what he does not have. And he has no love or joy and peace, only hate and envy and rage. And so when you believe in a real devil, that he is your accuser and tempter and adversary, then these become the relevant questions of your life that you should ask. How will I prepare myself to face this enemy? What can I do to oppose his destruction? And believe it or not, the church that has the word of God also has the right answer to that question that we should be asking. And we see the answer in verse 1. And the answer is that we cannot fight this battle or this enemy on our own. Let me draw your attention to just the physical appearance of the words of verse 1. Just look at the verse. And, and your eyes see the word Jesus, spirit, and devil. In verse 1, you see it? Jesus, spirit, and then devil. Now, I'm not saying that Matthew put this here for a theological statement. I'm just observing that for me. This is such a beautiful visual. That the spirit stands between Jesus and Satan, almost as a barrier. That's a a comfort to me. Jesus is not alone in this battle, and neither are we. What is of theological significance here is that the presence of the Spirit lets us know that there is a divine purpose for what's about to happen in these temptations of Jesus. This event is not outside the knowledge or the will of God. It's not isolated from Him. So the same Spirit that rested upon Jesus in baptism now leads Jesus to where He must go and to what He must do next. Jesus is not abandoned. He's not a left on His own. This is not God's way. Not the way of the God who says, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. That's the God that you and I have the privilege of calling our Father. Our enemy is not free to have his way with us unchecked. That's good news, isn't it? The Lord is always with us. That's better news, isn't it? And it's good news because we can't fight the battle on our own. We cannot oppose the work of the enemy and our own strength. The problem is we attempt to. And here's how we know we're trying to fight this battle on our own strength. And that's when we are prayerless. We just don't pray. Why pray? I can handle this in my own strength. We know we're going on our own when we don't go to the Word of God for wisdom and direction. We believe that we can lean on our own understanding. Our own wisdom, our own knowledge, that'll be enough. When we do not submit ourselves to the leading of the Spirit, we indicate that we believe that we can go it alone. Because we believe we know where to 
best to go and, and what best to do next. But here, Jesus submitted himself to the Spirit. He was led by the Spirit. He took a secondary place and followed where the Spirit led. In his humanity, Jesus, after his baptism, might have headed for a beautiful, lush oasis. And there would have been nothing wrong with that. In his humanity, Jesus might have decided to to, to take a vacation. But that's not where the Spirit led him. The Spirit did not lead Jesus to an oasis, but to a desert. The Spirit did not lead Jesus to a vacation, but to a battle. And so Jesus was led by the Spirit and submitted himself to the leading of the Spirit. Because the Spirit knows where Jesus must go next and what Jesus must do next to fulfill the plan of God. And so you and I must be led by the Spirit. And you know what? It's all about attitude, being led by the Spirit. It's not as mystical as you might think. It's just simply this, acknowledging, Lord, I'm not sure where to go next. And I'm not sure what to do next, but you know those things. And so you seek those answers from the Lord through prayer and through the study of the Word of God. It's easy for us to go it alone. And I'm not just talking to you. I'm talking to myself as well. Look, after 25 years of ministry, can you believe I've been doing this for 25 years? It's a long time. And there are certain things, yeah, you know, I I got this. Oh, I can do that. I've been doing this for for 25 years. No no need to really pray about that. No reason really to search the, the Word of God about that. No need for the Spirit really to show up to accomplish that. You have easy things in your life too. Comfortable things, autopilot things. And the truth of the matter is that we can usually do these things just fine on our own. And I'm not saying that those things are are wrong or bad or unworthy things. They might be good things. But I want to contrast those things to what we could be doing. What could we be doing? Acts that require us to pray and search Scripture. And submit ourselves to the leading of the Spirit. Things that absolutely cannot be accomplished and will not come to pass unless the Lord shows up. These are probably extraordinary things. These are the things that will probably really make a difference in this world for Jesus' sake. In the lives of those that you know. These are the things that will make a difference. That will right the wrongs in this world and bring about justice where there is none. And these are the things that I long for us to do as a church. Not alone, but with the Lord. Not alone, but with our family, with whom we are on what? Mission together. I want us to ask the Lord to show us extraordinary things that we can only do with Him. Lord, if you don't do it, it won't be done. And I want us, the Lord to take away our satisfaction with those things that we can do on our own. The safe things, the easy things, the comfortable things. There are extraordinary battles that must be fought. Battles that must be fought for the souls of people you know and love. 
your friends, your family members, people that you believe to be too far gone, messy situations, upsetting entanglements. And we may think those people are so deceived by the enemy, so entrenched in a way of living that we think they will never be released from the grip of Satan. It is impossible. Maybe they can't be by you or me alone with our words or with our reason or with our effort. But here's the thing. We are not alone. We do not fight for their release alone. So I ask you and I ask me what God asked Moses. Is the arm of the Lord too short? Moses faced a seemingly impossible situation. He had to feed people with no resources. Moses said to the Lord, Here I am among 600,000 men on foot, and you say I will give them meat to eat for a whole month? Would they have enough if flocks and herds were slaughtered for them? Would they have enough if all the fish in the sea were caught for them? Impossible. The Lord answers Moses, Is the Lord's arm too short? Now you will see whether or not what I say will come true for you. Isaiah 50, verse 2, Is my hand shortened that I cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Isaiah 59, 1, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. And so you and I, that's good news, isn't it? Because we battle with a Lord whose powerful arm has a long reach. And that means we invest our time doing battle for, interceding on the behalf of others. You know where the Lord Jesus Christ is right now? You know where He is. He's seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And He is interceding for us as we intercede on behalf of others. The enemy must and can be opposed. His destruction can be thwarted. But he can't be successfully opposed alone. So if you're trying to do it alone right now, I have two words for you. You don't have to write them down. I've found that most people can remember two simple words. And they're actually not my words. They're the words of Bob Newhart. Here are the words. Stop it. Are you going it alone? Stop it. Are you prayerless? Stop it. Are you ignoring the word of God? Stop it. Are you leading the way instead of being led by the Spirit? What? What? Otherwise, we invite the enemy to come in and destroy what could be beautiful gospel works because we've chosen to go it alone. Faithful disciples. And that's what we want to be. Faithful disciples of Jesus seek to do extraordinary things and fight extraordinary battles. It's the extraordinary things that we can't do alone that we should be doing because those things will make a difference in this world for Jesus' sake. So what are those things in your life? What are they? If there aren't any right now extraordinary things that you want to do, there can be. 
This afternoon is a new afternoon. There should be. A faithful disciple will ask God to reveal them. And by faith, a faithful disciple will do them. Will you be a faithful disciple? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, once again, we thank you for your word. Lord, it just records what was reality for you. As you stood in the the presence of the devil, the adversary, the tempter, the accuser. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, that we would learn from the reality of your experience. I pray that you would remind us that we are not irrelevant or antiquated or out of date because we continue to believe in you and we continue to believe that we have an enemy. Lord, we must believe these things so that we strengthen ourselves to face the enemy and to defeat the evil that he intends for us, for our lives, and for the world. Lord, I pray that we won't battle alone. Thank you for your presence with us. And Lord Jesus, I ask that we would be so dependent upon you and upon your spirit. Truly, Lord, we ask that you would help us to stop being prayerless and stop ignoring your word and and stop charging ahead in our lives with no thought of you or your guidance, or your leading of us. Help us stop those things, Lord, so that we can make a difference in this world for your sake. As we pray, as we go to your word, as we're led by your spirit to do extraordinary things by faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.